Welcome to the Obey Podcast, where we see through mainstream narrative. No propaganda, no bullshit, just the truth. And now, here's your host, Matthew Keck. Thank you for tuning in to the inaugural episode of the Obey Podcast. So what we're going to do today is I'm going to go through a lot of the top news stories in the last 24 hours, and we're just going to have a discussion about them, and I'm going to share a lot of thoughts I have, and I think this is going to be a good example of how I'm going to typically take a view of the news. So I just want to note that I'm recording this in the morning on September 4th, so Friday, so if anything I say has been uh, later contradicted by upcoming stories, just keep that in mind. Um, so... I think we should start with the top stories that I heard coming from the right, left, and the, the pseudo-center news outlets as I was kind of trying to obtain everybody's take on some of these stories and f- try to suss out what was being given the spotlight and was generally being pushed from all angles. Um, and I found that it was a really interesting news day. There were a lot of stories. It would seem like a busy news day, but most of these stories are not substantive, and this should surprise absolutely nobody. Uh, especially if you're listening to this podcast. So I'm going to go through why a lot of these stories are being pushed, maybe some of the incentives behind it, and why you really shouldn't care about them, and they provide just about no value to a listener. So I I think the person to start with is these stories revolving around Donald Trump that are being pushed right now. Uh, There's a handful of, I guess, flubs to some extent that are being portrayed strongly, especially in left-wing media outlets that are getting a lot of uh, play. And, okay, so, so, so let's go through them one by one, because there's a few. So first, Trump implied that his voters should vote more than once, at least that's how the left is interpreting him, because he said that they should vote by mail, but because you shouldn't really trust voting by mail, you should go in person and try to vote. And if vote by mail is actually working correctly, they shouldn't let you vote in person. Um, so this has been spun to say that Trump is telling people they should vote twice, which to some extent he did say. But they're adding a, a, a level of malicious intent to Trump's words that is not clear at all that he intended. So that's the first part. The second part is he gave a interview with Laura Ingram where he discussed uh, Joe Biden, and he said that there is a cabal of people who seem to be controlling Joe Biden, but he didn't give any type of evidence for this, and it seems like he was saying those people were Antifa, and those people were being flown into D.C. to stir up trouble, and that all these people are involved with Biden in some way. And then, then the last thing is he made a comparison between the shooting um the, 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 the shooting that took place recently in Wisconsin to golf to some extent because he defended cops stating that they can choke, right? So imagine a golfer has a putt to make and if they make that putt, they win, but they miss an easy putt because they were, you know, everything was on the line. So he was saying cops have something similar where you can be in the line of duty for years and years, but there aren't many situations where a quick reaction can lead to your own life or death which can lead to somebody being faster um, to draw and shoot a suspect. 
So that was a way he was willing to defend cops that the media jumped on because he compared it to golf, which is a, you know, a leisure sport. And of course, Trump would compare people losing their lives, especially minority people, to a simple game of golf. So none of these stories are particularly substantive, as it should be seen. They're all really just designed to fuel antagonism against Trump um, based on pure... Uh, faux pas that he makes in terms of word choices or just saying things that are kind of stupid. But you'll notice that none of these are particularly related to policy or things that will actually impact your life. It's more of, hey, look, our current overlord said something in poor taste that was unintelligent, so we will be absolutely outraged. So if anybody cites to these stories or points to them as if they have any value other than, you know, fueling outrage against the president, whether it's justified or not, they're really pointing to an empty story that has no substance and you, you gained nothing from hearing NPR cover for five minutes and hearing Pod Save America talk about it for 10 minutes and then hearing Ben Shapiro defend Trump from the right, you know, for another five minutes. There, there isn't a lot here. Um, in, a, in a way that this is a fake news story, not because it isn't true and didn't happen, but because it has it should not be news. Um, so that, that that's the first top story that is truly unimportant, uneventful, and you should be giving no attention to because it's just going to drive hate and division and keep people who don't even know each other to hate each other's guts and to further polarize everybody. And I'm not saying everybody should agree on values, but I'm saying th th this only makes things worse. Um, so then I'm going to swing the other way and talk about the story where Nancy Pelosi went to a hairdresser in San Francisco. So you, you might know that in California, a lot of salons, uh, shops to get people to get your hair cut or clothes, they can only do business outdoors, which is terrible because you're in the sweltering 100 degree California heat. And who really wants to sit there and get their hair cut if they're not in air conditioning. But of course, Nancy Pelosi, um, the, the Speaker of the House is able to stroll into San Francisco, go into a salon, get her hair done, um, and then, you know, there, there are photos taken of her not wearing a mask inside while, while getting this service, which goes against San Francisco regulations. So obviously this is going to trigger everybody on the right who says, look, Nancy Pelosi isn't even willing to abide by her own strict rules. How dare she? Now, although Nancy Pelosi's a hypocrite, and these, regulations, and these regulations are stupid, It doesn't. There, there's not a lot there, right? You're not digesting a lot. You're not learning a lot. This will not convince anybody who liked Nancy Pelosi that she is a bad person. It is just a simple story of, look, a politician did something that was not of high moral character. This is just filler. This is just something that Ann Coulter can list off in a paragraph about why Nancy Pelosi is evil in her, you know, book that she releases every year to, to make another few million dollars. This isn't something of substance to talk about. It's just something that you can add when you're shooting off reasons why you don't like Nancy Pelosi as a person. There's nothing value to be gained here, and we're all stupider for caring that much about it. So, of course, those regulations are bad, but this specific hit, although it is true that there's no value to be gained here. It's really just another device to keep people angry at each other. Um, okay, so to move on from that to maybe something that is a little more substantive, there's been a lot of talk about how the FDA might be prompted to use their emergency authorities to fast-track a coronavirus vaccine in the United States. Now, this is a big story. Um, it's almost a setting-the-stage type of story. So I, I guess to clarify that, um, you, you can imagine easily a world where a vaccine is released 
and a lot of people who find themselves usually on the right are skeptical of it because maybe it hasn't been tested enough and those people are already skeptical of elites that will push a vaccine. They're skeptical of the Bill Gates types. So they'll say, we don't truly know these long-term effects for a very long time. I don't want to have to take this because I don't even think coronavirus is a huge risk for somebody in my age and demographic. So you can see a lot of people making that sort of claim. Now, this is a very strange story because it's almost giving cover to people on the left who feel the same way to be skeptical of the vaccine because you have people who are saying that Trump's going to rush through a vaccine by using the FDA's powers to short, shorten the time it takes for them to you know, get approval that the treatment is safe. So th this is really just a hit on Trump potentially using a coronavirus vaccine for political gain. Um, now, the, the, there's a few other facets to the story. It also will allow them to downplay a coronavirus vaccine if it gets introduced in, say, October, right before the election, because they can say, well, we don't really know if this coronavirus vaccine is safe, so you can't really call it a success. That that might be something that happens, and it, and it gives liberals a way to say that it's not necessarily good without coming off as anti-vaxxers. So I think I think this is a story I'm going to keep my eye on. Um, and the, the left isn't one that would normally criticize, you know, the, the, the Food and Drug Administration because they think that the free market isn't willing to do these tests on their own, but they are willing to criticize the FDA when they're rolling back regulations, right? So even if they get something to market sooner and could save more lives by getting something to market sooner, they are willing to ignore that and say, since it's not properly tested, it can harm a large amount of people um, without looking at that hidden cost. Uh, all in all, this is one that you'd actually want to keep your eye on, unlike those first two kind of fake stories that only further divide people, because this one can truly be setting the stage to some extent for things that are going to unfold as we build up to the election and as the coronavirus vaccine, you know, approaches more immediately. And then I, I found another top story, just tr truly fascinating, um, almost because it was so odd to me. And I'm not sure if you are aware, but the, conduct, the Kentucky Derby, you know, the horse races will be happening this weekend. I think they were initially delayed. But the shocking part of the story is people are protesting the Kentucky Derby because of its racist past. So the, this almost seems comical because even if this is true, I, I, I don't think the Kentucky Derby was being overtly racist for probably decades. So now that we've had so many, you know, sh uh, shootings involving African-Americans and other minorities and cops that have been heavily publicized in the mainstream media and people are looking for things to protest. You have people out there protesting the Kentucky Derby because like pretty much everything in America that's been around for decades and decades, it at some point disenfranchised people of colors uh, of color. But the Kentucky Derby doesn't do that anymore, yet they still want to cancel it. So I, I think this is just illustrative that there is almost no real solution to the things a lot of the protesters are asking for or none that are viable so they ask for outlandish things or paint things in outlandish uh, lights right so we should cancel the kentucky derby because it was more racist in a time where a lot more people were racist um if, if you work with this mindset you're going to cancel pretty much anything that's existed for about 50 years or longer um and that's just a race to the bottom so this is just a very silly story that just shows how all the narratives around these protests and riots, typically when you boil them down to the actual substance, they really don't have anything that is informative or moving 
or that, that, that really makes you rethink their positions that they might be right when all they're asking for is some of these ridiculous things like banning the Kentucky Derby or getting it canceled. Um, and I, I think that segues a little bit into how I want to talk about specifically the Joe Biden, Donald Trump election and kind of the day-to-day update on that front. Because Joe Biden did go to Kenosha to deliver a speech. And Joe Biden is just the kind of politician who kind of will lean into their narrative without saying anything of substance, which is probably all he needs to do at this point, is to just go in and say that everybody needs to heal, whatever that means, Um, even though that's something that Obama was saying four years ago, and not a lot has changed since. Um, And even when Obama was president, he was saying that for a few years, I think from 2014 to 2016, everything after the Trayvon Martin shooting, Obama was kind of saying, we need to heal. And there wasn't anything of value that was accomplished in that time. And it's probably because if you just say vaguely, we need to heal, it doesn't, it's not like anything changed. People have just kind of yelled and the facts on the ground haven't changed. And I think part of this is because there aren't many tangible requests from the protesters that can be actualized. Um, and, and if you do acknowledge that they have some tangible requests, you end up recognizing certain things that are, you know, third rails of politics. So the Republicans don't want to touch qualified immunity, and, you know, the Democrats don't want to be labeled as thinking that they want to defund the police. And, you know, in some libertarian circles, too, when it comes to policing and cops, there is, to some extent, a divide, because libertarians are very against things like the war on drugs, and actually Reason Magazine put out several selections about all these policies you could do that would, uh, I guess, be, be helpful in the you know, to, to, to fit into this mainstream narrative that's being pushed that's against cops. So, like, you could end qualified immunity, which is something that I, I'm in favor of. Um, and you could do do things like stop prosecuting a lot of drug crimes. But the, the Democrats are just, would rather talk in platitudes than actually talk about substantive policy that could change anything. And if you want to get into ulterior implications of this, it could be that the the rioting and the havoc and the constant painting of anybody who's right wing that denies uh, the left wing worldview is probably uh, in some way at worst catering to racist, um, well at best catering to racist, and at worst actually racist. That that's kind of what the left has hinted at, and that that's why even like Mitt Romney was called a racist in 2012. And now we're kind of at the point where if you don't operate under the left wing's assumptions that America is systemically racist and everything needs to be undone, you, you can easily be painted as a racist of sorts. Um, so the left would rather operate in that paradigm than do things that might actually undo some of the harm. Now, one of the things that's interesting about that is the left doesn't really need harm to be happening to make the arguments they're making. Everything they're pointing to comes from really a bunch of anecdotes and a lot of anecdotes is a plurality of data, and a plurality of data is meaningful. But when you talk about, say, 20 shootings that we can probably name a lot of the victims of over six years, that's that's like three and a half instances a year. And that's really, really small when you consider all the police uh, interactions between police and citizens. That, that That's a very small sample size. So you, it doesn't show that there is systemic racism in any way of cops directly uh, hate, hating, you know, black people or targeting them out, f- singling them out for murder. And this is also something that they're going to really dive into when they start talking about um, the person who, uh, let me see if I can find their name real quick. It was Daniel Prude. They released the video where he was uh, 
treated very poorly by cops. I guess he was. It was in March. It was winter time outside, and I'm pretty sure he was naked outside under some drugs, uh, under the influence of some drugs. And uh, unfortunately, the cops were called on him to ch check out what was going on, I believe, by his brother. And then the cops put a bag over him. Um, I th I've heard some people defend that by saying it was in the early COVID times, so as to be a pseudo mask and it shouldn't have hurt his breathing. But then the way the cops tried to apprehend him, because a crazy man that's naked will not uh, really comply with cops very well most of the time, he pushed back and cops used force on him and he ended up dying. So th th this is one thing that happened, but since there's video of it, this is going to be treated like it's part of a very broad and obviously true narrative. And there's no reason to assume it, but it's something that people are going to watch and people are going to cite and it's going to stick in their head. And then they're going to use it to make the claim that obviously cops are trying to kill, kill black people and other people of color. And uh, so, so that's pretty ridiculous. So to some extent, if, even if the left did resolve the problems, even if they did put in policies that ended the war on drugs and things like this, they, they still only need these anecdotes to persist for them to push this race narrative. So I don't see it going away anytime in the near future. Even if Biden wins, it's going to come back the next time there are prominent Republicans. If Republicans take, you know, the House and the Senate and, and the Democrats president, they're going to keep pointing out these anecdotes to show why, you know, the Republicans won't push through legislation for that president to sign. And we could be seeing that in 2022, right? So it's, 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 it's a pretty ridiculous situation. Um, but to talk about specifically the election as a whole, um, Trump has, so, so I, unfortunately, I'm a masochist and I listen to some just terrible news outlets. Um, one of these things I listen to is a specific podcast that is just the Donald Trump campaign podcast. So the, these are very curated messages by the Donald Trump campaign. They're usually 40 to 50 minute episodes. And a lot of times they'll delve into one specific topic. And earlier this week, they were talking a lot about Trump's policies that will help black people and people of color. So part of what was interesting is unlike Joe Biden and the Democrats who talk in platitudes, Donald Trump will actually talk about some things of substance or at least say a throwaway line about something that you could believe would actually help. So he'll give a throwaway line about school choice because if you know people of color were able to pick charter schools and more charter schools were able to open, then these underprivileged kids would have access to environments that would be better for learning. And they wouldn't be trapped in these failed public schools while they're all on wait lists for these very limited random entry charter schools. And this is actually talked about a lot in Thomas Sowell's recent books, his recent book that I believe was titled Charter Schools and Their Enemies, which is an amazing book. It's very short. And it talks all about how public unions will block charter schools from buying these buildings that are vacant um, just so they can't open up more, you know, classrooms to teach people. And th these schools are definitely performing better than the public schools, um, but they're, they're, they're not able to have that opportunity. So Trump actually rolled back a lot of these regulations. He struck against those teacher unions that are pretty much enriching themselves while hurting the educational prospects of minority children. You know, that would actually be a real win for these minority communities. Um, so he's making these very valid points, and they talk to how all the Democrats do is, you know, kind of what I said is they say platitudes, and then they let crime uh, keep going. They, they, they don't really threaten to push back on crime, et cetera, et cetera. So that was something that the, the Trump campaign actually gets right. Now, the reason I'm bringing this up, though, is because 
the Republicans are really great at playing lip service. Or they pay lip service to a lot of great ideas, um, but they rarely enact any of them of value, and they often do their 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 worst um, promises. Right? I, I think it was this the law of Scott Horton's law, I believe, is uh, if you elect a politician, they'll only keep their worst promises. So when I'm hearing things from Trump, everything that he is right on are often things he doesn't care about. And that's what I hear when I hear him talk about school choice or when I hear this podcast dig into, you know, it has a couple of people of color on and they talk about how Trump's ideas can help black people. And in reality, school choice is very low on his priorities from all the available evidence the last four years. Uh, So you can't really see that happening, even though they'll pay lip service to it as well. And he's really just trying to get a few more black voters over for this election because it will help him out. Um, So you you do need to take that cynical take sometimes. Because when I considered myself more of a Republican than anything, which was, you know, around 2015 and 2016, it's because I took them at their word. But you you, you do find that Scott Horton's law rarely uh, is wrong. So all the things that you'll like about a Republican, whether if it's because they seem fiscally conservative and you think they'll actually give you more liberty and freedom and they'll actually roll things back, those are rarely the promises that they end up keeping. Um, Trump's kept us in wars. He never they, they, they weren't able to repeal the Affordable Care Act. There are all these promises that were unfulfilled, and his worst instincts are the ones that he was generally able to implement with the executive orders. And these are generally ones that made America as a whole less free. So I would keep that in mind, even though you may be, you know, hearing a lot of Republicans that are making sense, you have to think, are they just saying this because it is an opportunistic thing to say? Is it actually practical to implement? Um, and will they follow through? Because odds are they probably won't. Um, and then I would go as far as to say that there are a couple examples of Republicans then saying, I guess, the promises that are least appealing to me and doing things that are actively bad. So I I guess the first thing that's come up in the last week, um, I I guess I'll stick to the uh, Donald Trump campaign podcast, is they talked a lot about globalism, right? And this is a very controversial topic because you're talking about people in the United States losing jobs because factories close down. And when somebody loses a job, it is a very, very personal thing. If you've been working somewhere for 20 years and that factory disappears... You see, you can see that crush somebody's life. You can see them pull out, it pulls them out of the labor force and it destroys the career they're building. Now, when, when you think about this in the context of other things the Republicans seem to support, though, you, you would typically hear Republicans espouse something that is similar to a libertarian individualist ethic. So you would think that they would, they would uh, put a premium on things like freedom and, you know, consensual contracts. But In the pursuit of defending these factory jobs, they call for drastic infringements on everybody's uh, freedom of association. So a lot of what Trump said lines up with what Bernie would say about these jobs. And they would say, well, China ends up having factories that replace the American ones. They make all these things at a lower rate because they pay the people there less. And that's not fair because we have to pay people more for a lot of reasons, usually because our stuff just costs more here. And people in China can have lower standards of living, so they don't have to maintain as high of a standard of living. Um, so the, the response to that would be, when you then you know ban imports from China, you're really banning everybody in America's ability to transact with somebody in a foreign country, and it's a completely consensual transaction. And the, the, the pure reason you're doing this is because labor in a faraway place has outbid our labor. 
if they're able to make the same product, but they demand a lot less money, you're making that a, a crime because the person who's getting the job isn't an American. But the problem is you're, you're, you're misallocating resources. You're, you're taking an American who is potentially very skilled, and you're saying, no, there is somebody who can do the same job as you, but for cheaper. And instead of respecting that and thinking, okay, well, you know what? We're going to find something better for you to do, something different for you to do, because you are valuable in and of itself. We say, no, we're going to artificially give you the win. We're going to just ban that competitor, and we're going to give you the deal no matter what. And this ends up being a weird version of cronyism that enriches a lot of uh, people on the individual level, but then it increases prices of all sorts of goods, and then it makes it so you can't do business with who you want to do business. And this has a lot of indirect consequences, especially when you start talking about intermediate goods in the economy. So you, you start, you, you do something like this, and then an intermediate product increases in value. So everything that uses that intermediate product in the making of it now costs more. So then you have all these indirect increases in costs. And it's all just for the sake of keeping somebody in a job when somebody else is willing to do the same job for cheaper. But we've decided that because that person isn't born on our plot of land, they, they should be banned, and everybody in our country should be banned from doing business with them. So... Instead, what we could do is we could let their labor buy win, right? So they get the factory. And we, we realize that there are a lot of opportunities in our economy. There are a lot of unfilled jobs that sit there on Indeed. But as long as you artificially keep a bunch of factory workers and jobs, they're not going to go out and find a job that our economy is actually begging for. Instead, um, you're keeping them in a job that isn't even economically efficient while limiting other people's freedoms because it sounds better and you need to get elected. And th this is all cronyism. This is all cronyism to voters, and it's, it's truly unfair to the overwhelming American populace. Now, luckily, the, um, the people who are benefiting are benefiting on a small level relative to, say, like, there's no single person who's getting a $200 million influx into their bank account. But a lot of people are maintaining a job where they're getting paid, you know, sixty thousand dollars a year instead of having to find a new job that'll probably pay them forty-five thousand dollars a year. And everybody else doesn't notice that all their goods just cost a little bit more, and their quality of life is lower because a ton of things they're buying cost more than they should. So, I, I think that's something to think about, and it's it's infringing on this basic freedom just to be able to do business with who you want to be able to do business with. That's clearly not something that Republicans respect. And to, to tag, tag on to that, we, we, the, in the last few days, we've heard the Center of Disease Control come out and say that they're banning landlords from evicting tenants that aren't paying money because that's a, apparently a coronavirus hazard. Now, you, you can make an argument about extenuating circumstances because of the pandemic, and then we'd have to you know, have a whole conversation about is calling this pandemic even valid and whatnot and all the risks. And that's not really something we're going to undertake in this very, very uh, r relatively short podcast. But what I will say is you're pretty much telling landlords that they do not have the rights to their own property. Because when a landlord rents out their land, you're making an agreement with the tenant, you're entering a voluntary contract, and that voluntary contract says you pay me this amount per month, and I let you stay there, and then in a year, we'll reevaluate it and decide if you want to stay for another year, and then pay me that same amount. But the government has stepped in and said, actually, your contract doesn't matter, 
the tenant can do X, Y, and Z that goes against the contract, and you have to deal with it because you don't really have domain over your own property. And if you don't, if you don't like what we said, then we're going to fine you $100,000 if you evict somebody anyways, and we could potentially hold you criminally liable for up to a year. So th this is the government basically admitting that any landowner doesn't really have the rights to their own land. And if you're a property owner, you're essentially just the, the, the renter to the from the government, right? You pay your property taxes so they don't come and steal it from you, and then you have to operate under their rules even though you supposedly own it. So, so when you rent it to another person, you're almost more subletting to some extent because you clearly don't have ultimate rights over your land in the United States uh, you know, jurisdiction. So I, I bring up this example just to show that as much lip service that Trump probably uh, paid during, you know, the whole RNC in the last week, he talked a lot about, you know, freedom and how the Republicans do not want to be, you know, tyrants. They, they, they don't want to control your health care. They don't want to control this and that. And they do believe in some extent to empowering the individual. But, but do they really believe that? Is there really any kind of like liberty oriented Republicans still left? And I would say when you have messages like this coming out from the CDC, it really shows who is willing to go along with the, the rampant state, statism in the United States and who isn't. And, and luckily there were some conservatives that outwardly pushed back on, on what the CDC was doing. So you had some people at the National Review talk, speaking up against it. I saw Yaron Brook and some people who are like from the Ayn Rand you know, Institute speaking against it, although they're already more libertarian, so you'd, you'd hope that that's how they'd feel. Um, but I, I don't see the left flinching. I don't see a lot of people who actually hold office on the right flinching at this. It's, and it's because I don't think they really believe that you have a right to your property, even though it's supposed to be your property. So... So, so I guess to just kind of wrap things up, because I, I talked about a lot of stories and I, I tried to connect them in some way, um, and, and, and I just kind of want to summarize it so maybe you can have a takeaway from the, this first episode of the Obey podcast. Uh, a lot of news truly isn't important. You have some news that is just scandals that are, are fake scandals, and they're based on true events, but they don't matter at all. And this, a lot of these are about Trump, and then there was the, the Nancy Pelosi scandal about her hair. Who cares? It doesn't have any policy influence. Sure, they're, they're probably evil people. They're probably stupid people. But it doesn't really matter too much. And all it's going to do is get you in inflamed conversations that are really about nothing with people who you're supposed to be friends with. And it's just going to make you hate people you shouldn't hate, all in the name of arguing about your overlord. Right? That's stupid. Don't worry about that garbage. Then there is news that is kind of telling like how the FDA is talking about fast-tracking the coronavirus vaccine, and then you see it almost setting the stage for something. And this kind of needs to be looked at carefully because you can kind of see narratives being set up in advance. So if the left starts pu pushing back at the legitimacy of the coronavirus vaccine, and they want to be able to do that without being called anti-vaxxers, they now have kind of the the setup to do it, right? That They're allowed to do it if they think it's because Trump screwed up the regulations. Um then I guess there, there's a couple of stories like how, you know, Biden's he's giving a speech and he's just pushing a typical um, narrative, right? So, so these are things that we kind of have to acknowledge for what they are. The Democrats are going to pay lip service to stuff, but they don't really care and they don't really have a solution. And then you have to acknowledge that even though Trump may seem like a good option relative to, say, Biden's uh, spouting out platitudes, so, so, so Trump could seem relatively really good. 
But then you have to remember that a lot of the best things he says he's never going to follow up on, and a lot of the worst things he says are the things he's going to double down on. And and that, that that's ever-present when you look at the policy that actually does come through that only some people are talking about. So I, I think that was a good way to tie it together. And I, I, I think... I think I did a serviceable job breaking down the news for today. So I, I hope you guys enjoyed. I hope you guys come back tomorrow for more news. And I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let it play out. So thank you guys for listening to the first episode of the Obey podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave a rating or review on your favorite podcatcher or share the podcast with a friend. You can find out more information about the Obey Podcast at anchor.fm slash obeypodcast or on Twitter at the Obey Podcast. Until next time. Next time.